Turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 12. And we're going to read verse 42 to the end of the chapter. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world, so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for everyone here. Thank you for these times where we can come together and remember you and we can remember you together, we can praise you together. And we thank you, Lord, for your word. And I ask, Lord, that this morning you would, by your spirit, work through me, in us all, that we would hear the words of your Son and in the words of inspired Scripture, we would be instructed and taught, and Lord, that we would have our eyes open to see your glory. Lord, I ask this for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. What does it mean to know God? Now, that's a very short, simple phrase, isn't it? Know God. The words aren't long. The words aren't complicated. They're recognizable. We use those two words all the time, don't we? Know, it's a simple word. God, it's a word we hear all the time. What does it mean to know God? I'm concerned that as Christians and perhaps just as people, we get fooled into thinking that because that phrase, no God, is so little, the words are so familiar, and because the phrase seems so simple, doesn't it, and even harmless, we think that knowing God is nothing special. We think that knowing God is nothing unusual. We think that knowing God is nothing profound. Knowing God... What does that mean to know God? Well, it's easy, it's simple. Everybody basically knows God, right? I'm afraid that too often we're fooled into thinking those things. Now, if I had said, what does it mean to comprehend the absolute being? You might say, whoa, <laughs> that's deep. Nobody can comprehend the absolute being, right? But if I said, what does it mean to know God? You might say, oh, that's easy. Everybody knows God. <laughs> See, yeah, the, the words can fool us and trick us. Because when we talk about comprehending the absolute being, it makes us think of the infinite. It makes us think of the transcendent. No one can wrap their mind around the infinitude of God and the transcendence of God. Here's a fancy theological word. Theologians write about the aseity of God. I've, Anyone heard of the aseity of God? 
What does it mean, aseity? Well, it's a Latin word that means from oneself. In other words, when theologians talk about the aseity of God, they're talking about the fact that God is not a derivative being. He doesn't come from any, anything or anyone else. God exists in and of himself. He was never created. He has always been. He has always existed. There was never a time when there was not God and he wasn't produced. Now try to wrap your mind around his aseity. Can you? I mean, that's one of the things that just blows our minds, right? Everything we know is derivative. And so we say, well, yeah, when we try to wrap our minds around his infinitude and his transcendence, nobody can know. But when we talk about knowing God, what we mean is just not his infinite attributes and wrapping our heads around that, but what is God like? What is his personality? What is his character? What are his likes? What are his dislikes? And when it comes to that kind of a question, that's easy, and everybody basically knows God, right? If you ask people who God is, most people will tell you God is righteous, right? God is loving. God is good. God is just. And everybody seems to know that. So yes, everybody basically knows God, or most people in this world. It's not so uncommon. It's not so difficult. But brothers and sisters, nothing could be further from the truth according to the Bible. According to the Bible, not everyone knows God, and it's no little thing, and it's no superficial thing. In the Gospel of John, we learn that the purpose of Jesus' coming into the world is to bring the knowledge of God, right? That's the purpose for which he came into the world. John 1.1 states this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, when John writes this, he doesn't mean that in the beginning there was a means of communicating. John is saying something more profound than that. Or let me put it this way. He's not saying in the beginning there was a jumble of letters, sounds, and symbols, the building blocks of communication. What he's saying is in the beginning was the word of God, the message the content, and the truth that reveals the heart of God, coming from the heart of God, and that reveals who God is. John goes on to describe the word as light, which reveals the truth and reality about God. And then John goes on to say, the word became flesh and dwelt among us as Jesus. He is the word of God. He is the truth of God. He is the message of God. He is the revelation of the character of God. And his purpose for coming, John tells us in John 1.18, is this. No one has ever seen God. In other words, no one really knows who God is. But the only begotten Son, the one and only Son of God, who's in the bosom of the Father, who's right there in his heart, he has explained him or made him known. So the purpose of the coming of Jesus is to make God known. And that's no little thing. If everybody already knew God, we might say, well, what is, what's the big deal, Jesus? We already know that God is loving. We already know that God is just. We already know that God is righteous. We already know that God is good. So I don't get it. What are we missing? Well, apparently we're missing something, right? Because that's what he came to reveal. In John 17, 3, Jesus says this about knowing God. It is eternal life. This is eternal life, to know God, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. So no, this isn't some little thing. This isn't some New Testament thing only either. In Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 24, Jeremiah the prophet says this, If you're going to boast about anything, don't boast about your you know, how strong you are or how rich you are or whatever. Boast about this, that you know God. That's the only thing that you should be really boasting about and glad about. And all through the prophets in the Old Testament, here's a common refrain, that when God acts, 
before the eyes of the world, the end result is they shall know the Lord, right? So over and over and over again, what is God after? What is God getting at? His problem is, is that people don't know him, and he's going to act so that people do know him. So in other words, it's kind of the purpose of everything. It's not only the purpose of Jesus' coming, it's the purpose of creation. It's the purpose of God in this world is to make himself known. So it's no little thing. It's also not a hot commodity in our world, is it? What I mean is, if we look at what the Bible says about knowing God, we realize that most people in the world don't know God because we can only know God through Jesus. And the world is hostile to Jesus and to the truth and to the light that Jesus has brought into the world. And so people aren't typically thinking, you know, I really want to know God through Jesus. Or there's some deficiency in my knowledge of God. I need Jesus. They typically aren't thinking that. This morning, I'd like to talk about what does it mean to know God? And I hope that I've dispelled that myth that knowing God is some little thing, some easy thing that everybody kind of already knows, and some commonplace thing. It is the point of it all. The passage that we read this morning, if you look at it again, this is the closing section of the public ministry of Jesus. This is a summary of basically what Jesus has been saying in his public ministry. And John, the, the writer of the gospel, is wrapping up the first part of the gospel. He's wrapping up the public ministry of Jesus here. And we're about to enter the second half of the gospel of John, which is not the public ministry of Jesus, but the private, intimate discussion Jesus has with his, his 12 disciples, and then his passion. So if we can orient ourselves in the gospel here, we're at the end of his public ministry. It's closed. Here's the summary. Here's what it's all about. If you want to kind of capture it in a nutshell, this is it. And it shouldn't surprise us, therefore, that when John summarizes the public ministry of Jesus and basically the message of Jesus, it shouldn't surprise us that what we see Jesus preaching here is what? Knowing God. That's what he's talking about here. He's talking about bringing reality and the truth of God. So I've divided the sermon up into three sections. First, we're going to look at verse 42 and 43. And we're going to talk about the danger of not making God your preeminent priority. The danger of not making God your preeminent priority. If if the whole point of life is knowing God, and if the whole point of Jesus' coming is knowing God, then from our perspective, knowing God should be our preeminent priority. So first, the danger of not making God your preeminent priority. Number two, we'll talk about how Jesus brings us the knowledge of God, and then we'll close with the eternal consequences of accepting or rejecting the knowledge of God. So this is no little thing. So we, we owe it to God to listen, don't we? And to ourselves. So number one, the danger of not making God your preeminent priority. So what happens when a person does not ultimately care about God? What happens if God is not their preeminent priority, if there's other things on top of God that they are ultimately concerned about. Now, if you remember, two, three weeks ago, we looked at the section right before this. John has just been telling us that at the end of Jesus' public ministry, Israel as a nation did not believe in Jesus. They did not accept him, but they rejected him. And in verse 38 to 40, John tells us why that is. And he tells us that it's because of Israel's sin evil, 
and God was judicially punishing them for their sin and for, the, for their evil. And then in verse 42, after John tells us why Israel rejected God, rejected Christ, John looks at a particular group within Israel at the time. And this is a very interesting group, isn't it? Because what he says about them is they're not unbelievers. They're not arguing with Jesus. But what we see here is they are believers who failed to confess Christ for fear of what would happen to them. And what kind of people are they, according to verse 42? It says they are rulers. So these are really important people. So isn't that interesting? You think, you know, maybe the people who are in positions of power aren't afraid. But what we see here is the the people who are in positions of power are actually gripped by fear. And perhaps the more powerful you become, the more fear and temptation you have to lose it all, right? Kind of a blessing not to be that powerful and not, not to be that rich and not to be that important because, yeah, you don't lose as much if, if, you, get, if you suffer for the name of Christ. So these were leaders, these were rulers, and they believed in Jesus. These were educated people. You know what that reveals about Jesus is that the case was strong. Jesus and his messianic credentials were strong. And when Jesus says that there's evidence and testimony and witness towards him, he's not just convincing the ignorant people, he's convincing even the rulers. So in other words, there's no excuse for their fear. There's no excuse for not believing in Jesus. So what is the status of these men, these rulers? Are they saved? Are they true disciples of Jesus? I mean, they says they believe in him. So what is the status of these people? Well, verse 43, in verse 43, John gives us a decidedly negative commentary of these people. Here's what he says. They loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. The commentator D.A. Carson says this is a searing indictment. Do you feel kind of how painful that is? It's not a neutral observation. It's like, these guys have a big problem. The ancient Christian commentator John Chrysostom comments on the fact that they're rulers, and he says this. So then they were not rulers, but slaves in the utmost slavery. And I think we can safely say, based upon the what John's commenting here, and based upon other statements of Jesus, that these are not true disciples of Christ. Now that shouldn't surprise us. I mean, we have encountered already in the Gospel of John people who have believed in Jesus, um, but John has repeatedly shown us that that happens, and yet it doesn't mean someone truly understands who Jesus is. It doesn't mean that someone truly um, is born again. In other words, these people are probably believing Jesus is the Messiah, but they don't understand what it means to be the Messiah. But even with their faith that he's the Messiah, even with that they fear. Even with what little understanding they have, they fear. And that shows the states of their heart. And the state of their heart is this. God is not their preeminent concern. See, we've just been transported into the heavenlies. (laughs) Let me just restate that. I don't think these men, I mean, I don't think the people who were waving the palm branches at the time of Jesus or these rulers were really understanding what Jesus was all about. But even so, they had a faith. They said, I think this guy is the Messiah. He's got all the credentials. But even with that little understanding that they had, we see here that God was not their preeminent priority. And they were not willing to suffer for the truth. They were not willing to follow Jesus 
and confess him for fear of what they would lose. And so what we see here is they didn't, we see the state of their heart. And we also see an excellent, we see an excellent example of why people don't follow Jesus even today. Because they love the approval of men more than the approval of God. Contrast these men with the uh, blind man in John chapter 9. He was cast out of the synagogue, wasn't he? And consider, even he didn't understand everything about Jesus. He was just amazed that this man opened his eyes. And, you know, if he opened my eyes and you don't know where he's coming from, maybe he's of God. I mean, he doesn't really understand all the ins and outs of who Jesus is, but he's like, you know what? Maybe he's of God, and if he's of God, we should be believing in him. And if you have a problem with this, well, maybe something's wrong with you guys, you know? And he was kicked out, but it showed that this man, as opposed to these rulers, had God as his preeminent priority. He's saying, the most important thing in life is God. The most important thing in life is truth, not my reputation, not my safety. And that needs to be our hearts, that needs to be our preeminent priority if we are to be disciples and believers in Jesus. Otherwise, we can't be his disciples, as Jesus said. So it starts at that, at a bo- even at that bottom level. You may not know everything about Jesus, but do you have a heart that cares about the things of God more than anything else? Because if you don't, you're never going to know about Jesus. It has to start there. <clears throat> to love truth, to fear God, so we see in these, in these men the danger of not making God your preeminent priority. Number two, how Jesus brings us the knowledge of God. Now if it's God that we're concerned to know, how do we know him? We do not need to look far in the Bible, do we, to see that the Bible gives us the answer, you know him through Jesus Christ. And this is a wonderful truth, because what it means is, it's not only you who wants to know God, but God wants you to know him as well, and he sent his son into the world so that you can know him. So it's a beautiful thing when you realize Jesus came to reveal God. God wants you to know him. Look with me at verse 44. Jesus cried out, So whatever Jesus is about to say, it's very important. Here's an urgent, emotional, and far-reaching appeal. One commentator says, Jesus really wants believers. He's crying out. He's not hiding. He's not whispering. He's saying, listen. And he's calling to everyone, even to us. He wants believers. But we notice in verse 44 and 45, he does not want believers wholly for himself, does he? He says in verse 44 and 45, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. So what, what Jesus is meaning here is, you are accessing God Almighty through me. You are trusting in the Father through me. You are seeing God and knowing God through me. So what, here's, what we, here's what we learn from this, or here's, here's an important point. Christianity, friends, is not the religion of Jesus. It is the religion of God. Now that could be misunderstood. Christianity is not the religion of Jesus. It is the religion of God. And God, as it turns out, is the one who sent Jesus and is the one who also is sent. But it is God who we are interested in knowing. It is, it is God that is revealed to us in Christianity. So Christianity isn't saying this. You know that infinite transcendent God we were talking about that blows our minds? We don't concern ourselves with him anymore. We don't care about the infinite transcendent God because we've got Jesus. 
We've got the man, Jesus. He's way more understandable. He's who we believe and trust and concern ourselves with. We don't concern ourselves with this transcendent God anymore. Or maybe you've heard this before. It's quite popular. We don't concern ourselves with the God of the Old Testament anymore, right? The God of the Old Testament is the almighty God, creator of heaven and earth, but he's, he's, he's harsh, he's mean, he's cruel. He's all about law. He's all about rules. He's all about hell. He's all about wrath. But what Jesus shows us is, is you know, love and grace and compassion. And so we don't concern ourselves with the God of the Old Testament anymore. And some in theology have even thought that the God of the Old Testament is actually a bad, false God. And Jesus comes and reveals to us, you know, the true God. Jesus is not doing this, and he tells us in this statement, this, isn't, this, isn't, this doesn't stop with me. When you believe in me, when you trust in me, and when you see me, you're actually trusting and seeing and knowing God. And who is God? Well, the God of the Old Testament, the transcendent, infinite God. You're coming to know him and see him. If you think you're concerning yourself with Jesus, but not with God, you're actually concerning yourself with neither. Because Jesus himself said, this is actually bigger than just me, the man. This is about God. So Jesus is not some Absalom. Remember Absalom in the Old Testament? People come to David, the king. He's like, I'll take care of you. Come to me. Right? And he draws the hearts of Israel away from David to himself. He says, you don't need to go to David. Come to me. Jesus is not doing that with God the Father. Jesus is not saying, forget about God and look at me. He's saying, by looking at me, you see the Father. By looking at me, you come to know who God, that old God that you've been reading about, you come to know who he is. Because Jesus is the exact image of the Father. Verse 49, he says, I don't do anything of my own initiative. I'm here because of the Father, and everything that I do and everything that I say is just exactly what the Father tells me to do and say. I'm a perfect mirror image of the Father. So if you want to see the Father who who no one has seen, just look at me and you'll, you'll get who God is. So our faith as Christians is in the God that no one has seen and that no one can see. But he's revealed to us in and through Jesus Christ. And that should get us excited. That Christianity isn't saying, yeah, that God is off limits. Don't even try to understand him. Just try to understand Jesus. It should excite us, shouldn't it? That we can know the God who is almighty, heaven and earth. We can know the infinite God through Jesus. That should excite us. And we should rejoice that God is what Jesus has shown him to be. We should rejoice in that. Amen? It'd be kind of awful if it wasn't, right? We would never really know reality. And so Jesus says in verse 46, if you believe in me, you're not in darkness anymore. That's a comprehensive statement. That's not, you know, if you believe in me, I, I have shown you some important things, but you're still in dark about the most important things. And I think that's how it would be if Jesus didn't show us the infinite transcendent God, if he just showed us something else. I think we'd still be in darkness. We wouldn't really know ultimate reality. But he's saying, if you believe in me, you are not in darkness anymore. You know what's going on with this universe. You know, what's been, you know who the eternal God is if you know me. You are in ultimate reality. The flip side is, if you don't know me, and if you don't believe in me, you may know a whole lot of things, friends. You may be a lot smarter than a Christian on a whole lot of matters. You know, there's professors up at the university that are really knowledgeable, right? And they know a lot more than I do and a lot more than Christians do. But if they don't know Jesus, they are ultimately in darkness. They don't have a clue about ultimate reality and what is going on in this world, right? And this is what Jesus is saying. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And if you've seen the Father, you're in light. You are not in darkness anymore. You know what's going on. 
What an honor. And what a blessing. Okay, so if we see Jesus, we see God. And if we see God, we see ultimate reality. The next question that follows is obvious. What do we see when we see Jesus? What is it to know God? What was seen when Jesus was here that shows us who God is? And do you remember what John says in chapter 1, verse 14? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And what did we behold? We beheld his glory. And what does he say about his glory there? The glory of the only begotten Son of God. And what does he describe about it? He says, when, when Jesus came and revealed to us the glory of God, it was full of grace and truth. It was full he was full of grace and truth. Now, where do we see grace and truth in Jesus? We see it, brothers and sisters, in both Jesus' words and in Jesus' deeds. What he said and what he did. We see grace and truth. And it is not that his words are truthful and his deeds are are gracious, but in both his words and in his deeds, he revealed grace and truth. That is, Jesus' words were truthful and gracious. Jesus' deeds were truthful and gracious. Amen? And these things are inseparable, his words and his deeds. If we separate his words and his deeds, we don't see. Imagine for a moment if Jesus came and he never did anything except speak. Never healed anybody. Never died on the cross. Never rose from the dead. But he came and he said everything that he said. What, what, where would that leave us, do you think, when it came to knowing what Jesus is and seeing his glory and understanding the Father? I think we would be hopelessly confused, don't you think? If Jesus came and spoke everything that he said, I am the bread of life. My flesh is true flesh to eat. My blood is true blood to drink. Whoever believes in me will not perish. As Moses lifted up the bronze stake in the, in the wilderness, the Son of Man must be lifted up. If he just spoke all these things and then just left, we would be confused. We'd say, those are really gracious words, but I don't think they're truthful. I mean, nothing happened, right? And what am I supposed to do now? Now imagine Jesus came and he did everything that he did. That he came and he, and he made water into wine and he healed the sick, raised Lazarus from the dead, died upon the cross, rose from the dead, and he said nothing. What would happen then? Well, we might say, wow, something really significant happened. I don't understand what it was, right? So the words of Jesus interpret his deeds, and the deeds of Jesus make his words substantive and not empty. And by seeing his deeds and by understanding his words and his teachings, we see that God is full of grace and truth. We observe the words and the deeds of Jesus that were done in perfect obedience to God, in perfect concord with the Father, and because of that, we see the heart of God, and we see the glory of God, and we see that God is full of grace and truth. Now, I'd like to just point out the two things, I think, that we see that are totally beyond the ways and the thoughts of man. Isaiah said, my ways are not your ways, and my thoughts are not your thoughts. And here's what we see in Jesus that is totally beyond the ways and the thoughts of man. Because think about it, even somebody who is not a Christian could say, yeah, I believe God is full of grace and truth, right? He's gracious, he's truthful, I get it, I know God. So what is it about the grace and truth that Jesus has revealed that is 
different than what the non-Christian knows. Well, here's what Jesus taught and showed. Number one, and so important, and don't miss this, and if you're not a Christian here and you think, I know already about God, you don't know this and you need to know this. What Jesus showed us about God is that God is righteous. Hey, we already knew that, Jesus. Hold on a minute. That God is righteous, and according to the righteousness of God, God does not accept the best that man can offer. So Jesus comes like God said the Messiah would come, and everyone was waiting for him and excited. And when Jesus comes, he says, all of your righteousnesses are filthy rags. And those guys over there that you think are righteous, they're not. The best that man can offer, God does not accept. In fact, the world is perishing. And you know those, that tower that fell on some guys? Don't think you're any better than those people because you're not. Everyone deserves that. Everyone's unrighteous. Everyone is perishing. Everyone's under the wrath of God. And if you don't believe in me, you're going to perish. That's why I came into the world, to die for you, because if I don't die for you, there is no other way for you to be saved because you have no righteousness. You are not acceptable to God. If you were, I wouldn't need to die for you. But he came to die. Because God requires a righteousness that the best that man can offer is not good enough, it's not acceptable. And so the justice of God and the wrath of God is against everyone who is not perfect and blameless and sinless in the sight of God. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's like, you guys know God is righteous, right? You just don't know how righteous God is. You guys know God is just, right? But you think God is just and therefore he won't punish good people like me and you. And he's saying, God is just. I know you know he's just. He's going to punish you. So Jesus isn't coming into the world saying, guess what, everybody? God is good. Guess what, everybody? God is just. You already know that. What you don't know is that he requires perfection. This doesn't mean God is arbitrary. It doesn't mean God is cruel. We might think, well, that's so cruel of God. I don't require perfection. Why does he? What it means is God is pure way purer than you, than you thought. That's what it's all about. And when you lower standards and you think God accepts something less than perfection, you're not making a statement about you and me. You're making a statement about God and his purity. You're basically saying, God is righteous like I am righteous. God is pure, but he accepts impurity. You're not realizing the blazing, hot perfection and purity of God. He does not accept anything but total sinlessness and perfection and perfect love. He doesn't accept anything else. Not because he's cruel or arbitrary, but because he's perfect. So in other words, people who aren't accepting this about God don't understand how perfect and pure and righteous God really is. And that is the first thing that Jesus came to show us by his words and by his deeds in dying for us. Amen? God is righteous. Here's the second thing that's above the ways and the thoughts of man that Jesus revealed. God is rich in mercy and grace. And we see God's compassion and his tenderness and his sacrifice in everything Jesus does. I mean, the very fact that Jesus came, we see God's compassion and grace. The very fact that Jesus rebukes people is a sign of his grace and mercy. Amen? Open rebuke is better than secret love. The very fact that the message of Jesus is one of tenderness towards sinners is an amazing lesson in the, in the love of God. 
And Jesus invited sinners to eat with him, to be with him. And he told them, sinners as you are, wicked as you are, evil as you are, impure and unrighteous and worthy of wrath as you are, I've come for you. And if you believe in me, you will not perish. You will have everlasting life. Amen? Even though we are unrighteous and wicked, Jesus revealed to us, God loves us. So much that he came into the world to die for our sins, not so that we can have some second chance at proving ourselves, but so that we could have eternal life as a gift through faith alone. Free. Amen? Free. It's beyond anything any human being would do. I hope you realize that. I hope you've seen in your own life that you are not loving like that, right? Everything is conditional. Everything isn't free. This is unearthly. This is beautiful. And we get it so wrong, don't we? The world understands the death of Jesus so wrong because we think, man, if God loves the world, because that's not, that's not news to them. They know God loves, right? They say God is loving. We get it. If God, and they even say Jesus died for us. We get that. A lot of people say that. But they think this. If God loves the world, if, if he came into the world to die for us, man, we must be pretty good, right? We must be pretty good if he loves us that much. I mean, I love my friends like that, right? And I love my family members like that. So I must be his buddy and his friend and his family. I must be pretty close with God if he, did, if he would do that for me. Rather than, wow, he must be astonishingly good for doing that. Because I deserve his wrath. I'm his enemy. I'm not his family. I'm not his friend. I'm his foe. And I deserve death. And he doesn't owe me anything. And it would be right and good and just for him to send me to hell forever. And yet he died for me. There's a, love go there's a love here. There's a compassion. There's a mercy here that is bigger than anything this world knows. And that's what Jesus is revealing. And it's amazing. Jesus says right in the context here, verse 47, on this very occasion, summarizing his message, he says, look, if you don't believe in me, as wicked as that is, I'm not here to crush you because I didn't come to do that. I came to save you. Wicked people, I came to save you. And that's amazing. So brothers and sisters, a person does not know God If they know that he's infinite and transcendent, because that's true, God is infinite and transcendent, amen? The aseity of God is mind-blowing. And to recognize the infinite transcendence of God and to say, he's that and it blows my mind, that's absolutely true. You still don't know God. Nor does a person know God, supposing they see that about God, nor do they know God if they know that he's righteous and they know that he's loving and they know that he's good and they know that he's just. They still don't know God. You know God when you know just how righteous just how loving and good God really is. In other words, when his righteousness and his love becomes infinite and transcendent and mind-blowing, and you say, his purity is beyond my understanding, his love is beyond my understanding. So I'm not saying you fully grasp how the depth and the length and the height of the love of God is and the depth and the length and the height of his purity, but you know it is bigger than you can imagine and comprehend. And you're not going to lower standards and minimize his love to something that is human and understandable. Amen? And only Jesus can show you that. Jesus reveals the glory of God, and John tells us 
it's full of grace and truth. It's replete with grace and truth. Or here's the word I even like better. It's bursting with grace and truth. And if you know him, you are not in darkness anymore. It's awesome, isn't it? Amen. God is awesome. The eternal consequences of accepting and rejecting the knowledge of God brought by Jesus Christ. Here, I just want to close with this last thought. I think John the Apostle is doing something important here in this final summary. In this final speech of Jesus, on the very eve of his death, realize that Jesus is saying this and he knows he's just about to die. And these are his, these are his last words to Israel. These are his last parting words. Jesus here bears a striking resemblance to who, can you guess? I won't leave you hanging. To Moses. And I think John is doing something very important here. Jesus, in this final closing speech, bears a striking resemblance to Moses. And you'll remember, Moses also gave a final goodbye speech to Israel on the eve of his death too, amen? Right? And both Jesus and Moses, in their final goodbye speeches to the nation of Israel, said this, I have set before you life and death. Choose life. That's what Moses did, and that is what Jesus is doing here as well. He's saying, if you believe in me, eternal life. If you don't believe in me, verse 48, you will be condemned on judgment day. And you will perish. And the tragedy of that perishing is that you're condemned by the very message that was meant for your salvation. That's the tragedy of it. I think what Jesus means there is that I have come and revealed to you who God is. I've spoken his word. I've revealed his deeds. And they are true. It's clear. It's authenticated. You have no excuse now. And your exposure to this message is actually going to condemn you on Judgment Day if you reject it, and it's a tragedy. But if you do believe, he says, his command is eternal life. That is total freedom from death, total freedom from sin, total freedom from the curse, endless life, and more importantly, life abundant, because it is life lived in the knowledge of God and the knowledge of his righteousness and the knowledge of his love. Eternal life by believing in me. And he wants us to have it, doesn't he? He says, choose life. Here's the truth. I'm going away. I've given it to you the truth. I've laid it down. Life and death are before you. Choose life. Now, of course, Moses was saying, obey the law, which is impossible. Jesus is telling us to simply believe here. And John is doing something. He's saying, you remember how God promised that there'd be a prophet like Moses that he would raise up? Remember that in Deuteronomy chapter 18? So Moses said, God is going to raise up a prophet just like me. And Moses also says, God is going to put his words into the mouth of that prophet. And whoever does not listen to the words of that prophet will be destroyed. And John the Apostle saying, you remember when Moses said that? That's Jesus. The word of God is in Jesus' mouth. He is the second Moses. He is the deliverer of the people. He is the teacher. He is the one who gives the truth about God. And what we need to do is listen to him. That's it. What is the will of God for people? It's to hear and to listen to what Jesus has to say and believe. That is, our, that is what we need to do. And John contrasts Moses and Jesus in chapter 1 again. The law came through Moses, but what came through Jesus Christ? Grace and truth. So here we have this second Moses God promised. And he's spoken the word of life, and it is full of grace and truth.
to believe in him is to have eternal life and to know God. So in closing this morning, brothers and sisters, it is not a little thing to know God. It is not some easy thing that everybody kind of already knows. It is not commonplace. We know God through Jesus, and you cannot know God apart from Jesus. And knowing God is the purpose of everything, and it is worth every cost, and it is eternal life. So I just want to encourage us this morning, if you're a believer in Jesus and you have understood what I was saying this morning about his righteousness being infinite, about his love being infinite, let that be your boast today and tomorrow. And say, you know what the greatest thing about my life is? I know God. And I'm willing to, nothing else matters. This is, this is what it's all about for me, is knowing God. This is what it's about for me today, tomorrow, for the rest of my life, and for all eternity. It is knowing God. And I want to encourage you, if you know God, boast in it, have peace in it, have hope in it, and give God the glory because of how awesome and amazing he is. And if you don't know God, well, it's time for you now to make God your ultimate priority and you can know him by simply listening to what Jesus has revealed. Please stand with me and let's pray. Lord, you are so awesome and we rejoice this morning that you love us so much that you didn't let us perish and lord thank you for creating this world for the purpose of having the purpose of revealing yourself and giving us eternal life in you and so lord i just pray you'd encourage us as believers father i just pray you'd help us lift our eyes off of um, whatever difficulties we get distracted with, and help us to see, Lord, your beauty and that we know you and how awesome that is. And Lord, we also pray for our loved ones who don't know you, our friends who don't know you, or anyone here who doesn't know you. Lord, would you help them see that apart from knowing you, there's nothing in life that lasts or that is worth it or that matters. And Lord, we just pray you'd give them a hunger for you, and that you would be their preeminent concern. And we pray you would reveal to yourself to them, Lord, in all of your beauty and majesty. And so, Lord, we thank you. We just pray that you would encourage us as we go from here. And as we sing this last song, Lord, we just want to lift our hearts to you and give you praise and thanks for who you are. In Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.